as part of our rhythm. And man, what an answer to prayer this all is. Well, just uh, again, want to reiterate some of what Erica was saying, but next Sunday is crucial. Um, I know some of you are newer here to the brook. Maybe it's your first time, and it's pretty cool. You get to be a part of what God is doing in a pretty momentous season for us as a church. Um, next week, we'll talk a little bit more about our, our story as a church. I love talking about it because it's bragging on God and his faithfulness. Uh, but you're part of something today that the God of eternity is crafting together, using imperfect people like us to do things that are eternally significant. Let that sink in for a moment. He's using imperfect people like me and you to do things that have eternal significance. Not just things that matter next week or even for the next generation, but things that matter for all of eternity that people like us could be a part of that. Isn't that mind-blowing? God is so merciful, so good, man. He's so kind to us. And I'm just so glad, glad to be part of that. Each of, each of you are, are part of that as well. So, yeah, as Erica was saying, get on the invitation game. You know, go out, invite people. Um, please join us for the flyers today. The more people we have, the more ground we can cover. Um, we're thinking 45 minutes, an hour max, just to get out, pass out flyers on car windshields on front doorsteps of homes, and the more people we have, the more ground we can cover. Um, And then if you also say, you know what, I want to take a stack and hit up my neighborhood. I want people on my block and the surrounding blocks to know, take a stack with you as well when you go home. We got 5,000 flyers, and I don't want to throw any away, so let's let's distribute them all. That'd be amazing. Well, I'm going to read our passage for today, which comes from the book of Mark, chapter 8. We've been walking through this book of Mark, and the series is titled Follow Me because at various junctions, Jesus tells people, follow me. And today's passage is one of those momentous parts in the book of Mark where Jesus does that. Um, If I could trouble you for a moment, let's rise to our feet as I read the scriptures one more time. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in a pew in front of you. It's on page 844, so you can turn to that. I'm going to read the first section, and then I'm going to have us read together the second section aloud. Chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. And this is what God's Word said. This is Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's the title for Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Can you say plainly? plainly? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, say this with me, get behind me, Satan. Wow. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's read these verses together. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's keep reading. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Title of the sermon today, Price Tag. Because Jesus asks the disciples, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's like he's asking his disciples, what's your soul worth? If you've got to put a price tag on it, what's its value? Is it worth the whole world or is it worth more? See, our passage for today comes on the heels of Jesus having a pretty strong heart-to-heart with his disciples. Last week, we took a look at a passage where Jesus asked his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And they began to give answers. And we saw last week how in our society, people have all kinds of answers as to who Jesus is. You can hear anything from he's a miracle maker, a great teacher, or the greatest deceiver of mankind. And everything in between that spectrum But what Jesus does to his disciples is what he does for you and me. He goes from, who do people say that I am, to ask the personal question, who do you say that I am? And I hope that question was ringing and echoing in your mind the last seven days. Who do you say that Jesus is? See, it's not important what other people think about Jesus as much as it's important what do you think about him. Because what you believe about Jesus determines much of how you'll live. If he's a great historical figure, we'll consider him much like Abraham Lincoln. Great reputation, did great things, changed our nation. But I don't wake up in the morning thinking about Abraham Lincoln. When I hear his name, I smile. I might even tell people, hey, look what this guy did. Isn't he amazing? But I haven't given my life to Abraham Lincoln. See, what people say about Jesus, yes, it's good, but what do you say about him? Because what you believe about him will determine much how you live. If he's a historical figure, that's one thing. But if he is God's son, if he's the one who died for you, if he's the one who's given you a brand new life, you say, yes, Lord, I am yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated to you. What we believe about Jesus matters. And Jesus asks his disciples that question. And Peter raises his hand. He's the bold one in the class. You know, all of us, you know, when a teacher says, hey, who's got a question? And we kind of do these numbers. You look around waiting for that person. Or you look down and say, don't call on me. Peter was a guy who popped up and always said, I got the answer. And he said, Jesus, you are the Christ, which is language saying that you are the deliverer of God's people. And Jesus says, that's right. Peter, you got it. You hit the nail on the head. But I alluded to this last week, and today we're going to unpack it. I said, Peter said the right answer, but he didn't necessarily know what he was actually saying. See, Peter believed the right thing about Jesus, that Jesus was the deliverer, the Christ. But Peter didn't really understand what that meant. And so today in verse 31, we see the passage begins, and Jesus says, and it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. And he goes on. 
He began to teach them because Jesus understands that Peter and the rest of them don't understand what it means for Jesus to be the deliverer. And Jesus said, have a seat. I'm going to unpack this for you. It's quite startling, though, for me to think about us being able to have the right answer, but being misunderstanding in terms of its meaning. I come across people often, and you do the same, who seem to know the right answers, even about the faith, the Christian faith. They can tell you who Jesus is. They can even quote Bible verses to you. They know the right answer, but they haven't really understood the meaning. If I ask you, what does H2O mean? We'd say it's water. I'd say, what does H2O really mean? A lot of us wouldn't say, well, it's two hydrogen atoms bonded with oxygen and explain what that. No, we just say it's water. We know the right answer, but do we know its meaning? Peter said, you are the Christ. Correct answer. What does that mean? And that's where the hand comes down, like (laughs) someone else, you know. So Jesus says, I'm going to begin to teach you what it means. Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's a title for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and ultimately be killed. And after three days, rise again. I love how verse 32 says, and he said this plainly. There there was no mistake what Jesus was saying and meaning. Because in God's economy, a Savior who doesn't suffer is a Savior who cannot save. Jesus said, this is my mission. If you say and believe that I am the deliverer, you got to understand what that means. That doesn't mean that I'm going to come rolling in an army, riding a horse with my crown and his wicked sword, and we're about to lay it down here. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming to suffer, to die, and to raise from the dead. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer. This is the plan. There is no plan B. This is plan A, and this is what's going to happen. They're not going to reorder things when they face opposition. They're not going to retreat. They're not going to abandon ship. They're not going to say, let's revisit this another time. Jesus saying, I came and I must suffer. I must suffer. He must suffer many things. See, Jesus is God in human flesh, and he understands what's ahead of him. He knows that his best friends are going to betray him when he gets to Jerusalem. He he understands that his best friends are going to leave him when he needs them the most. He understands that he's going to be illegally arrested, illegally tried, and injustice is going to come to him. He understands that he's going to be mocked, spit upon, beaten. He understands that he's going to pay the penalty for humanity's sin. He says, the Son of Man is going to suffer. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to raise from the dead. Jesus is planning his own funeral. He knows what's coming. You know, I take comfort in this because Jesus is saying, God is in control of everything you're about to see happen. Everything is going to unpack here. My my betrayal, my crucifixion, my rising from the dead, that's all of God's plan. And if it's true for Jesus, church, we need to understand that God's in the same way in control of your life. There's nothing you ever face that God is unaware of. God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, 
I did not see that one coming. Man, I'm so sorry about that. I'll make it up to you next time. Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to raise from the dead. This is God's plan. Plan A, he's in control. Because in God's economy, a Savior who doesn't suffer is a Savior who cannot save. See, Jesus understood that humanity has a sin problem. That our sin separates us from God. We talk about this every single Sunday at the brook because that's the message that will give you a new life. And that's the message on our lips because that's the message that has transformed us. And Jesus says, the only way to take care of your sin problem and the wrath of God that you deserve is for Jesus to take the wrath for you. And Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for you. What Jesus makes is very plain, as Mark says in verse 32. He said this plainly, plain enough for the disciples to actually understand it. We've been looking at the last few chapters in the book of Mark, and oftentimes the disciples are left in the clouds. They're like, I don't know what just happened. I thought I knew who you were until you multiplied that bread and fed 4,000 people. I thought I knew who you were until we were on that boat. The storm came, and it listened to you when it told it to stop. And all this time, they're kind of confused. But here Jesus spoke plainly, plain enough for Peter again to raise his hand. Verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is saying, Jesus, this isn't supposed to happen. No, you are a deliverer. You're supposed to bring things down here today, now. You're supposed to be our king. You're supposed to set things up. You're supposed to take care of the Roman Empire. You're supposed to be our Christ, our Messiah. And he begins to rebuke Jesus. You ever find yourself rebuking God? You ever find yourself going to God and say, God, this is not the way it was supposed to go down. God, God, this is messed up right here. You need to take a second look at it. Peter fell into this trap because this happens to all of us at different times in life where we expect God to do one thing. He doesn't do it, and either we become embittered toward God or we say, God, I know you're in control. I'm going to trust you. And all of it depends upon where your vision lays. Peter had an earth problem. He couldn't see beyond the visible. He couldn't see beyond this life. And from this point, Jesus issues probably the sternest warning and harshest rebuke in all of the Bible. If you can find one harsher than this, tell me because I don't know of one. Jesus turning and seeing his disciples with Peter, saying, Peter, your words have influence. You just call me the Christ. You made the right affirmation, and now you're rebuking me. Jesus sees a problem here, and he looks at Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine that? See, his disciples thinking, man, I'm glad I didn't say anything. He looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. That is a, a rebuke for the ages. What was Jesus saying? What did Peter do? I, I've done some stuff, but for Jesus to say, hey, you're, you're being a messenger of Satan right now. You transferred from team Jesus to team Satan with this rebuke. You're no longer for me, but now you're against me. You are my enemy by what you're saying right now, Peter. Satan is a great enemy of God. 
He opposes everything about God. He hates Jesus, hates his followers, and Peter is aligning himself with him right now. What's going on here? Get behind me because you're in front of me. You're in my way, Peter. You're discouraging me. You're prohibiting the mission. Sometimes, without knowing, we can be in Peter's shoes, rebuking God and prohibiting and hindering the mission of God, and in so doing, acting on behalf of Team Satan as opposed to Team Jesus. If you're like me, I'm saying, okay, what did he do, though? What was the problem here? And Jesus lays it out. He says, get behind me, Satan, for, it's the reason, it's the because, it's a statement saying, this is the reason why, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, this is the reason you are causing a problem. Your eyes are in the wrong place. The word setting your mind is one word in Greek. And what it means is to ponder or let one's mind dwell upon something or to fix one's attention to something or to keep thinking about it. Peter, your mind is set on this earth. You are thinking about this life. You are thinking about the now, and you have no vision for eternity. And Peter, because of it, you're going for Team Satan here. Church, we have competing voices in our lives all the time that would want to detract our eyes and remove them from having them set upon God and his great eternal plans and put them on this life and despair in the here and now. So many voices say, put all your eggs in this basket and forget about what God is doing in the big picture. I open up saying God uses imperfect people to do things of eternal significance And if you remember that, you can be a part of that. But if you forget that, you live for this life. Peter was there. The same kind of temptation that led Peter to set his eyes on this world are the same kind of things that you and I face every day. And it may not look the same as it looked for Peter. But nonetheless, it's the same symptom. In 1 John chapter 2, John, one of... Jesus' apostles, who was right here in this situation, I wonder if he was thinking about this one as he wrote. He said, do not love the world, 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, the Bible tells us time and again that when we live for this life, we're living for something that is passing away. We're, we're, we're banking on something that's going to perish, spoil, and fade. And Peter is exhibit A when it comes to this. And he found himself opposing God. And you might be thinking, as I was thinking, but that's still a strong statement, Jesus. In what ways is setting our mind on this earth oppose your mission? Well, think about this. God wants to use his children to be agents of change, but the world replaces that by the pursuit of fame for fame's sake. 
There are advantages of having wealth, but our world replaces that by self-indulgence. There are advantages and opportunities that come with power, but we've seen it replaced with abuse of power. We've seen the passions and desires for love and romance replaced by lust and selfishness. You see, what God has made for good, if it's twisted, it no longer is going for what God wants it to accomplish, but we find ourselves opposing God. You see, when we think about what this looks like, take these three categories in our society, the money, sex, power categories, things that many live for and desire, Things that God himself has created, money, sex, and power. And he has meant them to be for good. Take money, for instance. God has given us the opportunity for wealth to use it to advance his kingdom purposes. We can have great wealth and use it to help people see how great Jesus is. But money can be a stranglehold on our lives. When we get to Mark chapter 10, there's a story of a man, a rich, young ruler. A young man who had great wealth, but a man who was owned by his wealth. And he told Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I obey my parents. I, I, I obey all your commandments. I don't murder. I, don't, I do all these things. What else do I need to do, Jesus? And Jesus says, one more thing. Sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. It says the man put his head down and walked away. He had great wealth and great ability to be a great agent of change, but it was a stranglehold and prevented him. His eyes were set on the world and not on things in God, and no longer will he advance God's mission because the world was in front of him. Take sex, for instance. Marriage is meant to be the proper place for sex because in that, God takes two people and makes them one. And this beautiful picture demonstrates the love that Jesus has for his people and brings them to himself and makes us one with him. But we see in the Bible a man like King Solomon, who's known to be the wisest man ever and also the greatest fool. If you ask people, what do you know about King Solomon? They'll say he was a wise man, but he had many wives and concubines. Sex corrupted him. Although marriage could have been something that advanced God's mission in his life. And then we take power. Power, God gives people power and responsibility to be people who make a difference in society. And that's his kingdom vision. But when we're tainted by this world, it gets skewed. You may have heard a story of Samson. And Samson is known for one thing. What is it? His strength that came by how? His long hair. I'm growing mine out, family. Trust me. And this is what he was known for. People, they'll say, oh, yeah, the story of Samson. He had long hair. He had a relationship with a lady named Delilah. And she tricked him into getting, finding the answer to his strength and cut his hair. And we say, that's the story of Samson. But you ever ask, why was Samson strong? Do you know why God gave Samson strength? God gave Samson power to deliver his people from oppression to other nations, from other nations. Samson was supposed to be a military leader to use his strength to put armies to flight so that God's people could be delivered from oppression. But Samson took his power and let it corrupt and squandered in his life the opportunity 
to make a difference for God's kingdom. See, Peter is one right now who has his eyes set on this earth, the same things that tempt us frequently to do. And Jesus says we need to keep an eternal perspective and use this life to make a difference that matters in eternity. With our wealth, with our passions, with our power, with our opportunities, with our gifts, with our joys. And here Peter could not see the fact that Jesus had a mission to accomplish. And rather than coming around team Jesus, he comes against him. And Jesus gives him one of the greatest rebukes ever because of it. See, understanding who Jesus is makes a difference of how we live our lives. And Jesus sees this as a great opportunity. It's like, if you misunderstand me, you're going to misunderstand my mission. And if you misunderstand my mission, you're going to misunderstand your purpose in life. And Jesus continues on in our passage. Verse 34, calling the crowd to him, With his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, My life will be marked by suffering, but so will the lives of my followers. If you misunderstand that for me, you'll misunderstand that for you. If you understand that I suffered and would die for you, you understand that your life won't be always rose-colored. It isn't always going to be easy, but it will be worth it. He says, if you want to be my follower, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And this is why we have white flags around this building. Because it's the surrendering of our lives to Jesus that says, Jesus, I understand who you are, and I want what you have for my life. I'm laying my life down for you. I'm denying myself. I'm taking up my cross and I'm following after you, Jesus, no matter what may come my way. We wear crosses on our neck. We use it in designs and decorations because it means something to us. But at this moment, a cross meant something very different for the disciples because Jesus had yet to go on it. For them, this was simply an executionary device. This was just something that criminals were killed upon. This wasn't something their Savior died on yet. This was something that criminals went on. And Jesus is saying, you want to follow me, you need to carry one. It's a jarring statement, but Jesus is saying, this is my mission and this is my purpose for you. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Man, Jesus has a way of turning words. You want to live for this life? You want, to, you want to try to build up for today? You're going to lose it for tomorrow. But if you store up your treasures in heaven, then you'll be able to, you have to die today to do that. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm calling you to do. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. You can't put a price tag on your soul. You can't say, I'll get all I can in this life, and that's worth my soul. Jesus purchased you. So don't throw it away. Jesus is saying, this is why I came. This is the reason. It's 
remarkable how Jesus says being a follower of him is an either-or choice, not a both-and one. You can't say, I'm going to choose to live for the world and live for Jesus. Jesus saying, that's not following me. It's either-or. This is an important moment for Jesus' followers, as this is for you and me. What is Jesus to you? Is he a both-and choice where you say, you know what, I'm going to live for him this day, I'm going to live for myself that day, I'm going to live for them there? Or are you going to say, Jesus, my eyes are set upon you, and in all of my life, I've surrendered. I'm yours. Take it. Take my life, no matter what may come my way. When people reject me, when my family makes fun of me, when my classmates mock me, when my teacher insults me, when my spouse looks down on me, Jesus, I belong to you. The world is behind me. The cross is before me. I've decided to follow you. See, Jesus calls us to himself. You know, sometimes we emphasize denying the world, sometimes to a fault, where we think it means isolation from the world. See, I believe what Jesus wants us to do, the key comes in the word setting your mind. See, we can live in this life and invest it for gratings for God with our minds set on Jesus. We could be great at the arts for Jesus with our mind set on him. Great educators, business execs, politicians, people in the medical field. We can use all of what we have setting our mind on him. Jesus is saying that's the key here. But seeing that Jesus defined discipleship as taking a cross, when he says, my life is marked with suffering, so will yours be, you might be asking the question, why would I want to follow you? I mean, if someone says, hey, come over, come over to my house, but when you get here, it's going to be the worst time of your life. But come on by. You were like, why, why would I want to do that? And when I read this, some of you are thinking, like, that, that's what this sounds like. I'd rather an easy life, honestly. Well, here in this passage, Jesus gives the reason. Because we can sometimes fixate on the challenges with and overlook the glory in all of this. Jesus says, whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is offering to save your life. This is significant. The Bible teaches that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved from our bondage to sin. That sounds good. We are saved from eternal death. That sounds good. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from eternal separation. And now we can be free. And now we can live. And now we can be part of God's family. And now we can experience God's joy because when we lose our life, we will save it. Jesus isn't saying, come be my disciple and live miserable for the rest of your life. He's saying, come be my disciples. Yes, there will be hardship. I'm not trying to make this is all, all, all chocolate covered. No, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Life will be difficult. But know this. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to walk with you through it. 
And you will be a part of my family. You will be forgiven. You will have an eternal hope. And you can set your mind on things that matter for eternity. So following Jesus isn't torture. It's not inviting someone over to a miserable time. It's saying something that makes sense of this life and offers eternal forgiveness and joy in life. Jesus is telling his followers, follow me. In life, in death, in joy, with our eyes set upon Jesus. I get excited thinking about our three-year anniversary. I get excited thinking about two worship services. And I'll be the first one to admit I have nerves. I've got fears. There's so much unknown that exists six days from now. And people think, how long do you think it's going to take to adjust? I'm like, well, if I can adjust by Christmas, I'll be happy. There are many things that are unknown, but what gets me so excited? And what causes me to wake up and be about this work is what God can and will do through it. So many of you here today, I know your stories personally. And you can tell people how God made a 180 in your life. You were going that way to destruction, and he turned you around and gave you life. You will say, even as I suffer, because I do, but even as I suffer, God is faithful. He is enough. He's all that I need. And there are people in our community who are suffering and have no answers for that. They're heading down destruction with their eyes covered. And I get excited to think that through your invitations and your love and your sharing this hope, that they can know that their life matters to God. And that Jesus said, I must suffer many things. I will be rejected by my friends. I will be betrayed. Injustice will happen. I will be tortured. I will face God's wrath, but I did it for you to save you. For people to know that they are beloved by God. That gets me excited. But we're not going to sugarcoat the message. We're not going to say that life's going to become easy. We're not going to say that every prayer request you'll ever have will be answered just the way you want it. But we will say there's a God in the heavens who knows what you need, who cares for you, and has sent his son to die for you. And this same God says, follow me. Will you take up your cross and be about this kingdom work that matters for eternity? Will you say, I'm not going to put a price tag on my soul that involves this life? But I'm see that I've been purchased by God, by his blood. That's what we want to be about. We're going to watch a video here that shares a story briefly of someone in history who made this decision at the greatest of costs. And as we hear this story, in this short video, I want you to think about your own life. And I want you to think, have you made that decision to follow Jesus no matter what comes your way? Have you put your foot down and saying, God, I want to live for you because I know that's best. My prayer is that this song and this video would remind you of the beauties of living for Jesus And the glories of dying for him when that comes. So let's watch this video and prayerfully listen to it as we continue on.
in mid-19th century India, a man converted to Christianity by Welsh missionaries was confronted by the chief of his village. The chief commanded him to renounce his newfound faith in Christ or face grave consequences. In response to the chief's threats, however, the man only replied, Infuriated, the village chief dragged the man's family outside and began to threaten them with bodily harm. The man, unflinching, responded to the leader's ultimatum. to save face among the people, the village chief slaughtered the man's family in front of him. He turned his eyes to the steadfast convert, demanding that he either deny the works of Jesus or face his own death. In the center of the public square, the man was bound, beaten, thrown to the ground, and slowly crushed to death. But not without a final defiance of the village chief. As his bones were breaking and his lungs collapsing, the man's final words rang out in song through the village square. The call of Christ is clear. Forsake the dark and powerless system of this world and cling to the saving hope of the cross. Then and only then can you look to the shackles of your former life and declare that there is no turning back. Father in heaven, there have been many faithful men and women throughout the ages who stood at the crossroads that many of us have faced or will face. Where we'll choose God, are we going to live for you with our minds set upon you? Or let fear or self indulgence or our comforts prevent us from being about your mission, God. Lord God, we want, Lord, to put our foot down. Say, God, we are yours. We raise our white flag. We surrender unto you, O God. Father, as you work in our hearts, even this morning, Lord, I pray that you would stir us accordingly, God, that you do in us what you want to do even now, Lord. God, for those who have not put their faith in Jesus, for those who have never truly surrendered their lives to him, believing that he lived a perfect life and died for them and rose from the dead to pay for their sin and give them a new life, God, may today be that day for them. And for others, Lord, who forget the awe of the cross and the beauty of the cross and the delights of having our lives saved by it. Lord, renew that in our hearts today. So, Lord, we declare today, Jesus indeed is the Christ. The Christ who suffered. The Christ who died. And the Christ who rose from the dead. This is our God. So, Lord, we worship you this morning. 
And we make this declaration today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Prayer team, would you guys come forward? Prayer team to the front and to the back. As we sing these final songs, God's stirring your heart in one way or another as he's so faithful to do. Don't let this opportunity pass you by where someone would love to pray with you. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never had someone pray for you. Or maybe you've never come to the front or never gone to the back. But just walk to someone and say, hey, God's doing something in my heart. Would you pray for me? God's stirring in my heart. I got this prayer request or this burden I came in with that I don't want to leave with. So that's what our prayer team is here for. Let them pray for you. Let's sing together, church, making this declaration that we will carry our cross because of Jesus.